Morning, church family. <clears throat> you know, honestly, I don't mind reading, but if I read for 15 minutes, he'll preach for an hour. If I read for a half hour, he'll preach for two. So that's the whole thing about the chapters. If you guys want to join me, we're going to be reading in uh, John chapter 18. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. So if you want to open your Bibles there and join me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. When Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Cyphus, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that he would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door, so the the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servant and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Let's pray. Father God, we just we come before you, Lord, with a with a heart of wanting to learn more about you, Lord. I just pray that we, uh, we bend a knee and bow a knee to the, to the God who created us, who bought us back. And, Lord, we just ask that your word go out and accomplish what it's sent out to do. Lord, I just ask for a blessing on Jackie as he brings forth your word, Lord, that uh, the message will go out to each one of us and it will become part of us and we'll share it with the world. We give you all the honor and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I I really can preach for two hours. Ron. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I just, uh, I love the Gospel of John so much. Hey, yesterday, we we had our 
Passover meal together as a church family and and are so blessed by all the people who helped us uh, uh, get that all done. So I just wanted to make sure that I had an opportunity to tell you all thank you for your labor of love to accomplish Passover last night. And I'll thank you ahead of time for breakfast next week. So I appreciate all the help that we have. So we come to the arrest. Now remember, we're still dealing with the same night. So John, way back in John chapter 13, you remember? It was a long time ago. In John chapter 13, Jesus had the what we call the Last Supper, a Passover meal with his disciples. And he got to the third cup of the Passover meal. A Passover meal has four cups. The last cup is a cup of praise. The third cup is a cup of redemption. So it's interesting because tradition holds that the right before the third cup, you have what's called the afikomen, that which comes later. Within the unity napkin on Passover, the middle matzah is broken. Now, there's no real explanation in Judaism for this practice that they take three matzahs in one napkin. The middle matzah is broken, and half of that matzah, that matzah that was broken, is hidden, buried, if you will. At the end of the meal, the children go and find that other half, the afikomen, and bring it to uh, the head table at Passover, and that afikomen is broken into many little pieces, and each piece is given to one of the people there at the table. The Bible tells us in John chapter 13, Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so they, they ate of that bread and then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant. My blood shed for you for the remission of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. And so they took of the cup. And then Jesus stopped the meal. And he said, I will not drink of this cup of the fruit of the vine until I do it together with you in my Father's kingdom. The fourth cup, the cup of praise, is the first cup that we will have together at the marriage supper of the Lamb with the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints gathered together with, with Jesus Christ and his kingdom as we have the cup of praise. Celebrating our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that night he stops, doesn't have the fourth cup. He gets up and we have chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17. At chapter 18, we have found ourselves on the other side of the Mount of Olives in a garden. A place that Jesus specifically went to. We know this was a place that Judas was familiar with. We know this was a place he often went to with his disciples to pray at the end of the day. And so we find him there. In verse 1 of John 18, it says, Well, when Jesus had spoken these words, remember the high priestly prayer we read last time. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook 
Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So this whole time, I just don't want you, so many times, one of the first things you'll recognize if you go with us to Israel and you walk through Jerusalem is how short a walk it is from the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives. Now, I'd like to say I could throw a rock that far, but I can't throw a rock anywhere anymore. But it's, it's really not very far away. It's a short walk. In fact, every one of us, today is <clears throat> Palm Sunday. If you come with us to Israel, we, we do the Palm Sunday walk where Jesus walked down the Mount of Olives and into the temple. We, we go on that. We walk that down the Mount of Olives. We walk into Jerusalem. It is not a, a very long walk. And so here he crosses the brook Kidron. Now the Kidron is a, basically a dry river. If you're in the desert, a desert people understands this. There are some, some creeks that only flow in the, in the spring. In the summer they're dry. And Kidron is just like that. The Kidron is a dry, uh, mostly it's a dry creek bed. And a few times of the year it may flow, but it doesn't flow. It's not very big. It's not very wide. It's a simple little jump across. And then as you walk up the other side of the, of the Mount of Olives, nobody knows where the garden is. Today, you go to a place in Israel where the oldest trees on the Mount of Olives is. And those trees, they don't date back to the time of Christ. But they are the gnarliest olive trees you will ever see. Because the olive tree, they just keep uh, um, adding branches to the tree, growing the tree. The, the root stays alive, but the trunk will die and it gets all gnarly looking. It's pretty wild to, to see some of these very 800 years old, 1,000 year old trees uh, where, they, where they have the traditional site of the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible tells us Jesus went into that garden and he, and he uh, came there together with, dis, with his disciples. Verse 2 says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So we asked the question, why did he go there? Now we know Jesus knows Judas is coming, right? Something I do every time we go to Israel when we stand on the Mount of Olives, I tell people, now stand here. And I point, there's Caiaphas' house. Judas is going to go to the high priest. He's going to betray the Lord. He's going to be given a cohort of soldiers. It's nighttime. They don't have flashlights. So in order to see where they're going, they're going to bring torches or lanterns, right? Something that they can see by. So you have a cohort of soldiers, which is 600 soldiers, plus Judas, plus whatever... Uh, we know that uh, Malchus is there, right? He's going to lose an ear in a little while. So we know that there are some servants that are part of the group. It's not a little group. And they're walking from Jerusalem carrying torches, 600 guys, up to the Mount of Olives. And if you stand on the Mount of Olives and look over there, there is no human way possible not to see him coming. So if you, if you or I, we see 600 guys coming to arrest us, escape would be simple. But Jesus doesn't want to escape, does he? Because it's there in the Garden of Gethsemane 
where Jesus says, and a lot of people misunderstand this prayer, where Jesus prays, Lord, if there's, if there's a way that this cup may pass from me. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, right? Now, a lot of people, they, they misunderstand the prayer. That prayer does not mean that Jesus' will is not to go to the cross. Jesus said over and over and over again in his ministry, I have come to do my Father's will. I have come to do my Father's will. What he wants us to understand is that it is God's will he went to the cross. So Jesus is saying, this is, not, this is not about me or my plan. This is my Father's. This is my Father's will. It doesn't mean he's opposed to it because we know doctrinally within the Godhead there's no opposition of wills. It's not like Jesus is trying to save you and God the Father is trying to send you to hell. It doesn't work that way. The point is the Godhead is functioning together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he is one God. One purpose, unified together. So Jesus has gone to this place. Now a lot of people will say he went there because then Judas knows where to come get him. And that's possible too. But there's always more to it. If, if you want to become a good student of the word, you'll discover that there are a lot of things God's word says. There's a lot of foreshadowing. There's a lot of activity in the background. That if you're willing to do the work to study, you will see. Jesus goes to this place. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, we see a parallel story in the life of David. David would prophesy that the Messiah is the son of David, meaning there's a lot of things in David's life that are going to parallel what the Christ does. And so in 2 Samuel 15, 23, as David is leaving Jerusalem, it says, all the land wept aloud and all the people passed by as the king crossed the brook Kidron. And the people passed toward the wilderness. So David walked out of Jerusalem when he left with all the people weeping, sorrowful. That's exactly what's been described. And he steps over the brook Kidron headed toward the wilderness. Just so you're aware, that's to the east. And you have one mountain to cross to get to the wilderness. It's called the Mount of Olives. Scripture goes on to say in verse 30 of 2 Samuel, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads. They went up weeping as they went. And it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David said, O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David would write in Psalm 41, 9, Even my close friend whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a prophetic psalm about the betrayal of Messiah. Now Jesus is walking up the same mountain. I would even go so far as to argue stopping at the same place while his betrayer is on his way to him. There's... There are no coincidences 
in the word of God. There is the fingerprints of the plan and purpose of God everywhere throughout the scriptures. So here we have Jesus coming up the Mount of Olives. It says in verse 3, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So they're going up the mountain. Now this reminds me of another story. I'll share it with you in a little while. But we have here a detachment. 600 men, one-tenth, excuse me, one-tenth of a Roman legion. I know this because in verse 12, here in John 18, it says that a captain went with them. And the word for captain is kiliarkos. Kiliarkos means a military tribune, and his job was to run a Roman legion. If there were a hundred men, they sent out... Who? Centurion, because centurion means the captain over a hundred. So within this cohort, you're going to have six centurions and one captain or tribune who was the man over the entire legion. So it's a big deal. The bigwigs are coming out. All the important people are gathering to come to the arrest. Of Jesus. In verse 4, it says, And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, Who are you looking for? Man, I love that Jesus does this. I love that he, even though he knows, he knows why they're there, he knows what they're coming for, he's going to let them use their own lips. He's going to ask them, Who are you looking for? And it's, it, There's a reason that he does this. Because just as I shared before, there is so much foreshadowing in the Bible. And if you study the Bible, when these things occur, there are little light bulbs that are going to go on in your head. And you're going to say, hey, that reminds me of this. Or, oh, that reminds me of of this situation. And so Jesus here, he asked them, who do you seek? He knew what they're there for. The Bible very clearly declares, and I know a lot of people struggle with this concept, so we'll touch on it real quick. Jesus knew everything, and the word of God tells us, Jesus would say to the people, no man knows the hour which the Son of Man will come, but the Father, only the Father knows. And so we struggle with, well, how is it that Jesus can't know when he comes? So, so let me kind of help you get a little bit of a foundation under that idea. In the culture, the Jewish culture, a, a man didn't just decide, I'm going to go get married. So the man would go get married. Usually a family organized the, the marriage, right? He put it together. There's a betrothal. The betrothal happens. They make promises to each other. Yep, it's you and me forever, you and me forever. And then the young man would go into his father's house and build a place for he and his bride. And there would come a day when the father would look to his son and he would say to her, go get your bride. It was a term of honor and respect for the son to give that to the father. What Jesus is saying is not necessarily, I don't know when I'm coming. 
but that my Father will send me because I have come to do my Father's will. My Father's will. It's not, it's not a statement of, of knowledge, whether he does know or doesn't know. It is a deferment from the Son to the Father saying, I, I don't do anything apart from my Father's will. Which again speaks to the unity within the Godhead. There, there's not confusion. There is confusion in the unity of Jackie's head. In the Godhead, yeah, amen, right? In the Godhead, there is no confusion. Everybody within the Godhead understands what they're doing and their purpose. The Bible tells in 1 John 3.20 that our heart, yours and mine, it condemns us, but God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. He knows it all. How many times did Jesus know the heart of every man he was talking to? And they would ask him a question and he would give them the answer to the question that was in their mind, not the one that came out of their lips. Because he knows everything. And he knows what's going on. He knows what these guys are doing when they're coming up the mountain. He knows where he's going. He knows what's about to befall him. And very calmly, he asked them the question, Whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus said, I am he. Now Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now I told you, if you're a student of the Bible, there are some stories and events that take place. And when they happen, it reminds you of something else. It reminds you of, a, of another story in the Bible, a precursor, something that to give us an idea of, of what is going on. Now the scripture tells us in verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they all fall down. Now if, if uh, you have New King James, King James Bible, you're, the word he should be in italics because it's not there. Jesus didn't say I am he. He said ego I me. He said, I am. Ego I me is also the name of God. I am. Moses asked the Lord, what shall I say to the children of Israel when they ask me, who has sent me to them? God says, when they ask you, you tell them, I am that I am. Yahweh. Yahweh, it's where we get the word Yahweh. That's, that's where that comes from. So Jesus is going to make this proclamation and they're all going to fall down. And if you are a student of the word of God, there should be something in the back of your mind going, seems like I've heard about this before. Something like this, when the king would send a bunch of men to go arrest the man of God, God's anointed. If, we, if you look with me in the second Kings, <clears throat> Beginning in verse 9, we have one of my favorite stories of Elijah. It says, so the king sent to him, Elijah, a captain of 50 men with his 50. So you have a captain of 50 men with his 50, and they come up to Elijah, who's sitting on top of the hill. Similar? And he said to him, oh man of God, the king says, come down. I don't think he said it nice. But Elijah answered the captain of the 50, 
If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. That's part one. This is a three-part story. So the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. Now, if you're the second captain, have you learned anything from those who have gone before you? Well, in this case, the answer is no. And he answered and said to him, O man of God. So this time, at least he says it a little nicer. This is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them and said, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And so the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. The Bible has a lot of stories that revolve around three, in case you didn't notice. The king sent this captain, and the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah. And entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of, of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. So the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, okay, go with him. The angel of the Lord is a picture in Old Testament scriptures of the pre-incarnate Christ. He's the captain of the Lord's army. He appears multiple times throughout the Old Testament. And so here, beside Elijah, you have Jesus, and he says to him, okay, now go ahead and go with him. Go ahead and go. They come to arrest Jesus, and he says, who are you guys looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. What do they got with them? They got torches and swords and, and all kinds of things like there's going to be a big fight. Does Jesus need anybody to fight for him? No. All he says to them when they say, we come for Jesus, he says, I am. And 600 Roman soldiers fall to the ground. And my brain goes immediately to Elijah and them 50. And all I can think is, you're lucky he does not call fire from heaven and make, make them guys send another bunch of soldiers up. Yeah, he comes up and they, it says in Psalm 27, listen to what David wrote. David wrote this, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. And as they come to arrest Jesus, all he does is say the name of God and they all fall down. I am. In John chapter 10, verse 17 Jesus would write this. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. The whole point of what's going on here and the whole reason why Elijah is a foreshadowing of that is because 
Elijah don't have to go down the mountain. Does he? These guys are telling Elijah, the king says you have to come. The king has no authority over Elijah. Elijah is God's anointed. Elijah does what God says to do. And so they come to, to bid him come as though the king has authority over Elijah. And when the third guy came up, what did he say? Hey, Elijah, these are your men. We are your servants. Didn't he? Didn't he? You are the Lord's anointed. What is Jesus telling us when he says, I am and they all fall down? He is saying this. Nobody is taking my life from me. I give it. I give it. In John chapter 10, that's why Jesus said, this is why the Father has honored me, because I give my life. Do you really think the Romans could have nailed him to the cross? Do you really think Caiaphas could have pulled off his plot to arrest Jesus if he was not willing? The Bible tells us he doesn't need our help. Revelation chapter 6 through 19 is the section of Revelation that talks about what we would call the Great Tribulation. At the end of chapter 19, you have the return of Jesus Christ as a king. He comes riding on a white horse. He comes to the valley of, or the plains of Megiddo, which is Armageddon. And as he rides into those plains, we follow him. He doesn't need us. The Bible says that he will come from Basra all the way. That's the entire uh, valley of Jezreel through Armageddon all the way to Jerusalem. And he's not going to need your help. The Bible declares that as he goes through that valley... The blood will flow to the horse's bridle. That's a lot of blood in a valley that's 185 miles long. Now, the point of the story is not for us to figure out how you get that much blood to flow in a valley. The point of the story, what, what is he telling us? I got this. I don't need you. When it comes to doing battle with the wicked, he wants us to know He's got this. That's why David could say, I'm not afraid. Why am I not afraid? Because the Lord is with me. What can you do to me? Nothing. You can do nothing to me unless my Father in heaven, my great God and Savior Jesus Christ, says it's okay. And whatever passes through the hands of my Savior into my life, I will trust he will give me the strength for whatever I face. That's what he's teaching us on the Mount of Olives. He is saying, nobody's taken me nowhere. I'm going. You have got to this week as we prepare for Easter, as we, as we draw into that season. This is something that I have done for the whole hundred years I've been alive. <laughs> I begin right at the end of Isaiah 52 with who has believed our report. And I read all of Isaiah 53 every day 
leading up into Easter. You know what it's going to say? It's going to say things like, he gave his cheeks to those who plucked out. Wait, what did it say? What did it say? He gave his cheeks. That there's nothing no man could do that he did not freely give of himself. So in John chapter 10, Jesus wants to know. He wants his disciples to know. Listen, he says, I want you to know, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Let me say this another way. I lay it down of my own will. It's not an opposing will to the Father's will. He just wants us to know he came to do the Father's will. I will lay my life down. And I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Now that's something you and I can't do, right? But once we lay our lives down, that's it. But Jesus isn't like us, is he? He says, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. And this authority, this charge I have received from my Father. One will, one purpose, one God under heaven by which men must be saved. One name, the name of Jesus. So we ask ourselves, who's in charge? Who's accomplishing all this? Who's doing all of these things? Well, if you want to know that, you've got to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 2. In the book of Acts chapter 2, you have in our story one of the greater knuckleheads. His name is Peter. He has been uh, transformed, right? He's been transformed. He's been conformed into the image of the Son of God. The Lord has transformed his life so that he has left the, the knucklehead kingdom and he has entered into the kingdom of his light. And he's preaching a message on the day of Pentecost. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, a man you knew who he was. That's what he's saying. A man attested to you by God. How do we know he was from God? With mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you know. Made the blind see, the dead walk, the, the, the lame walk, right? The, there's, there's no end to the miracles that we see in the life of Christ. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Whose plan is it? Caiaphas' plan? Is it, is it uh, Annas' plan? Is it Judas' plan? Whose plan is it? This is God's plan. To the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, he said, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he's not saying you're not guilty. It's God's plan, but you still did it. You are not coerced. You are not forced. You're just acting according to who you are. You're doing what you want. So you crucified him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible, 
it is impossible that death could hold the Christ. It is impossible. Why? Because the Bible describes the Son of God as life. And life, Zoe, does not end. Life is life. Death is death. They're not the same thing. They're not two ends of the same coin. Life is life. Truth is truth. Truth is not false. Truth is truth. He is life. He is light. The darkness could not hold him. It said in John chapter 1, and neither could death. Death could not hold him. He gave himself on the cross for us as a part of God's purpose to bring salvation to a bunch of, an entire group of knuckleheads who need a savior. Because if you could have saved yourself, you'd have done it by now. You can't. And neither can I. I need a savior. My savior is Jesus Christ. He is my great God and savior. That's what the, the Bible declares. And I have placed my faith and trust all in him. Now, this all started when <clears throat> Jesus said, I am, and they all fall down. And then they get up, and he asks them again, who are you looking for? Doesn't that remind you of Elijah? Who are you looking for? For last time we said Jesus of Nazareth, he knocked us all down by just speaking. And so they said again, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus answered and said to them, I told you I am, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. So he's got his disciples there. Now this is interesting. I don't want you to miss this because he says in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost no one. Now when we read those those sections, when we read that section where Jesus said, I haven't lost anybody, we always want to put some kind of soteriological explanation on that and we want to add extra weight to the statement. But what Jesus is saying here as he's being arrested is none of my disciples are going to die, just me. With the exception of one, right? That's what Jesus said. There's one, the betrayer, He's going to die too. Does, was it God that killed him? How, how did Judas die? Oh, that's right. So you have, a, you have a parallel as we look at this story. You have a parallel between Peter and Judas. They both do the same thing. Judas betrayed Christ and Peter betrayed Christ. Right? Peter's going to deny he even knows him three times. That's a betrayal. When Judas betrays Christ, the Bible says that he is sorry that he has betrayed an innocent man. He throws silver back into the, the temple area from which they're going to uh, buy the burial plot that they're going to put Judas in. They don't know that yet, but that's what they're going to use it for. And then Judas ran to suicide as his savior. Suicide doesn't save. Peter's going to betray the Lord. He's going to deny he knows him three times. At the third denial, 
Jesus, who's being beaten at the time, is going to turn and look at him. The Gospel of Luke is going to say they lock eyes. Peter's heart's going to break. He's going to be so sorry that the Bible describes him as running from that place, weeping bitterly. There's not a more harsh term to use for weeping. So this is like snot blowing out your face, weeping. This is all of it, right? He is weeping. His heart is broken. He runs from that place. The difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter ran to Jesus as a savior. And Jesus forgave him. Yes? Judas doesn't do that. When Jesus said, there's one lost to me, I don't believe he's saying he's lost to me eternally. That's not the point. That's a choice Judas is going to make later on. He's going to make it when when he doesn't go to Jesus as Savior, when he doesn't come to Jesus for salvation. When he doesn't go to the Lord and ask forgiveness. I don't care you threw coins back in the temple. The guy you betrayed, he's coming back in three days and you were there when he told you that. Weren't you? But Judas is not looking for a savior. He just wants out. Peter is looking for a savior has nothing to do with the act. The act of the suicide of Judas is not what condemns him. What condemns him is he did not go to his Savior. When I say we need a Savior, I am saying you need to go to Jesus. You need to repent to Jesus. Don't repent to me. I'm a knucklehead like you. We repent to Christ. We ask for his forgiveness. We ask for his salvation. The Bible declares if we believe in him, we put our trust in him, Lord, save me, what did Jesus say he would do? He said, I'll save you. That's what he's accomplishing in John 18. That's what he's accomplishing when he gives himself to those who arrest him. What do, you, what do you think Michael the archangel is doing in heaven while this is going on? I always picture all the other angels having to put chains around him to keep him from coming down here and cleaning house. So here Jesus is saying, look, I haven't lost anyone. And he's directly attributing it to the fact that his disciples are going to survive his arrest and his crucifixion. Are you guys tracking with me okay? There's one who's not going to survive that because he's going to commit suicide. That's Judas. As the, as the arrest takes place, sometimes it's helpful for us to, to listen to uh, some of the other gospel accounts because John has a point. Remember as we've been working through John, John's got a focus. He wants you to believe Jesus is the Son of God and to have life in his name. This is why he's written the stories he's written. The other gospel writers are giving us more of a biography on the events that are taking place. And so, in Matthew 26, we read this. So he came up to Jesus. Roughly around this time, Jesus has spoken. All the men fall down. Somewhere around, after verse 9 and prior to verse 10, 
Matthew 26 takes place. Judas walks up and says, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said, Friend, do what you've come to do. Here I am, arrest me, let them go. So they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. In verse 51, it says, And behold, there were one of those who were with Jesus, who stretched out his hand and drew his sword. Wow, that sounds familiar, huh? And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place. All who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I need your help? That's a Jackie paraphrase. He just said, I am, and 600 soldiers fell down. Do you think that that made him sweat? That took a lot out of him. He couldn't say it again. So when he raises his sword and you hear Jesus say to him, do you not think that I could appeal to my father? If I asked my father to send... 12 legions of angels. So a legion is 6,000. 6,000 in, in each legion. So we sing a song, he could have called 10,000 angels, but it's actually more than that, right? Now last I checked, the Bible tells a story about one angel killing 185,000 men. One. What, what would happen if 72,000 angels showed up? Well, that'd be a bad day for earth. Yeah? <clears throat> that would be a bad day for earth. So he's saying, look, I, I don't need you. I've come. Listen, he wants his disciples to know, I have come to do this. I'm your savior. Don't you remember what John the Baptist said the day that, that he pointed to the disciples and said, behold, the Lamb of God, which... Takes away the sin of the... How does the lamb take away sin? Lays down his life. Right? In John 18, verse 10, it says, Simon Peter, having drew, having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name is Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is what I've come to do. Peter, put away your sword. Put it up. The last miracle Jesus does is healing someone hurt by one of his disciples. He touches his ear and he heals Malchus's ear. Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter's trying to stop what he has come to do, right? But Peter don't understand it, right? We get it. Do you, do you always understand what God's doing in your life? I mean, is it always really clear? Like, well, I know this is what God's doing in my life. You know how I know what God's doing in my life? When it's not my life, but when whatever the event is over, maybe my life too. But when the event is over and I look back, now I can see God's fingerprints. But during the event, it's hard to see, right? It's often hard to see. So Peter doesn't understand. He's trying to do what he thinks God wants him to do. Luke 22, verse 47 says, Now while he was speaking, there came a crowd, the man called Judas, one of the twelve leading him. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said, 
Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So I just want you to know Peter's not the only guy with a sword there. The disciples look at Jesus and they're like, is it time to fight? Is it time to fight? And Jesus said, no, it's not. Oftentimes I get asked questions about self-defense and how that's supposed to work. Is it okay to carry? Is it not okay to carry? Well, in the state of Idaho, it's okay to carry, so knock yourself out. Um, but when we look at this question, this is a more important answer. Uh, a while back, Mark was at a, uh, Mark Dowding was at one of our men's breakfasts, and he shared this, this verse still echoes in my head over and over and over again when he's talking about the gathering of, of uh, the army uh, for David, and he says, uh, and, and there came men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what God wanted to do. They knew what to do. There's no such thing as a one-line answer to what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do what God says to do. That's what you're supposed to do. And what marked the men of Issachar and the army of David was, they knew what to do. That phrase is every night, every morning, echoing in my mind. The idea that we as a nation find ourselves in exile. That we, our generation, we messed up. Our nation has rejected the Lord. We are going into exile. Everybody's going to hate you. The freedoms that you've had, you're not going to have. One day, you may have to sneak to church on a Sunday. But we still have a job to do. There is something God wants. There is an act that God is asking for from us. We need men of Issachar who know the sign of the times and what to do. Who have an answer what to do. Who acknowledge what it is that God is wanting to accomplish. What is it that he wants to accomplish Here's one thing I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I don't have to doubt this at all. What does God want? He wants us to raise up a generation ready to stand. Because if you think days are going to get better, you are cracked. Days are going to wax worse and worse. And I don't say that so we stick our head in the sand and... Start weeping about, oh my gosh, life's going to get hard. Yeah, I would say it's time to buck up. And it's time for the generation that has uh, had a time of relaxation and not a lot of persecution. It's time to pony up. It's time to say to my kids and my grandkids and my friends and my family to pour into lives of people who are going to be here longer than me. To prepare a people, just like the exile, for the day they go back to the land. I don't know 
we, if you and I are the last generation or not. I don't know that. I know that I look for my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I will celebrate at his return. And when he calls me home, hallelujah. But until that time, my job is not to put my feet up and watch ESPN. <laughs> Which I don't even have anymore. The Lord did a perfect work this year and got me to stop watching all sports. It was incredible. But he has laid this burden on my heart. We need men of Issachar. We need men who know what to do. We need men who want to be a part of a solution for the days we find ourselves in. So we answer the question, is it time to fight? I don't know. Is it time to teach? I definitely know it is time for that, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord declared that every man is supposed to teach his children, raise them up, train them up in the ways of the Lord, right? To teach a generation to walk with God. Currently, the generation today has been taught how to walk away from God. That's our job to fix that. Men of Issachar who know the days at hand. Jesus said, shall I not drink the cup? Is this not my purpose? Is this not my, the thing I've come to do? And so he's going to do what, what the Lord had laid on him to do. Verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. That was illegal. Under Jewish law, it was illegal to bind a person who had not been condemned. There was only one thing that was bound in Jewish law. Do you know what it is? The sacrifice. The sacrifice was bound. What is Jesus? He who knew no sin became our sin sacrifice that we might become the righteousness of God. So they bound him. Remember Isaac? Isaac? Abraham, go to the place that I will show you and there offer your son, your only son, the one whom you love. In Genesis 22, we read the story. In Genesis 22, 9, it says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son. Isaac wasn't fighting. He wasn't trying not to be bound. He bound Isaac because that's what you do to the sacrifice. Why? Because that is foreshadowing of Christ. He'll be bound because he is a sacrifice. In Leviticus 17.5, it says, To this end, the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice their, them as sacrifices of peace offering to the Lord. The sacrifice is bound and brought to the priest. Isaiah 53, remember I told you I read this every day this week. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. He is led to the slaughter. Like sheep before his shears, shears is silent. So 
he will not open up his mouth. They bound him and they led him to Annas. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. Here's a little background on why it is this way. So Caiaphas is a son-in-law of Annas. He's married to Annas' daughter. Annas is the high priest from A.D. 6 until 15. In A.D. 15, the Romans depose him. They get rid of him. How long does the Bible say you serve as high priest? Your life. Until the high priest dies. So Annas, the Romans don't have the authority, but hey, they're in charge. So they make and they take Annas and they say, you're not high priest no more. And they choose Caiaphas, his son-in-law, and made him high priest. When they arrested Jesus, they bound him like you do a sacrifice. They led him like you do a sacrifice to the one who does the sacrifice, the high priest. So they brought him to Annas. Annas is the high priest. As far as God is concerned, Annas is the one who will approve of the sacrifice that is going uh, to be given. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews, he prophesied, it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Oh, that's an important thing to know, right? It is expedient that one man would die for the people. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And that's what we're reading. John 18, 15, it says, Now Simon Peter followed Jesus, so did other, another disciple. So there's two disciples who followed him. It's John and Peter. John, the writer of this gospel, is the other one. He never names himself. And Peter. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, how did they get in? They got, on, they got in because John knew the high priest. Why did John know the high priest? Well, James and John were called the sons of Zebedee. One of the largest... Uh, producers of fish in the fish market in Jerusalem was the Zebedee family. They, in fact, regularly sold fish to the wealthiest people in Jerusalem, of whom would be Annas and Caiaphas. Yeah. Look, these guys are all living in the same neck of the woods. They know each other. John, he comes in, they, the high priest knows him, says, sure, let him in. Let him in. He's, he's, uh, he's known to them, so that gets Peter in the door. It says in verse 16, he, John followed Jesus into the courtyard. In verse 15, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside. So as you walk in, you come into the courtyard, it's all outside, you have an outer courtyard and an inner courtyard, no roof over anything. And so you would pass from the outer courtyard to the inner courtyard. John keeps following Jesus into the inner courtyard. Peter stops in the outer. Are you tracking with me? 
He stops in the outer courtyard. Um, it says, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. And they brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are, are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And so it begins. The same night, the cock has not crowed. Jesus, just a few hours earlier, said to Peter, before this night is over, you are going to deny you know me. And here he stands outside with a little servant girl, and he says, nope, I'm not with him. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So John gets Peter in. Peter stays in the outer courtyard. John's going to be in. Both of them can see Jesus. The Gospel of Luke tells us that when Peter denies him for the final time, Jesus is going to turn and look at him. And Peter's going to hear those words Jesus spoke to him earlier, echoing in his head. And he's going to realize, the very thing I said I would never do, I've done. Anybody ever said I would never do something and done it? So we're all guilty, right? Where do we go when we're guilty? We go to a savior. That's where we go. We're going to talk a little bit more about Peter in the days coming up. But in closing, I just want you to recognize the three problems what got Peter into trouble? First, he followed Jesus at a distance. Jesus always kept Peter, James, and John closest to him. You know why? Because they were trouble. What do you do with your most troublesome children? You keep them close. Jesus kept him close. Look, I know I'm a troublesome child. I will never survive in this world walking with Christ if I don't choose to walk close. I'll never make it. If I say I'm going to live out on the fringe, you won't, you won't know the difference between me and anybody else in the world. So I need to choose to walk close, not at a distance. Peter walked at a distance. What happened? He had a strong witness? No. He denied he even knew the Lord, right? He walked at a distance. The second thing he did is he failed to identify himself as a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. He would not identify himself as a believer. One of my favorite things about Celebrate Recovery is this phrase. I am not going to introduce myself at Celebrate Recovery as an, an addict. I'm not going to introduce myself as an alcoholic. I'm going to introduce myself like this. I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ and I struggle with because I'm not identified by my sin. I'm identified by my Savior. I'm not identified by my sin. I'm identified by my Savior. So we got to stand for him. 
Don't stand on the fringes. You will fade away. Stand in the light, proclaiming yourself to be a child of the light. You may say, well, I'm not perfect. Well, hallelujah, welcome to the family. Yeah, you ain't perfect, I ain't perfect, there's nobody in here perfect. The people later on who are going to come to me and tell me what I said wrong today, they're not perfect neither. (laughs) There is nobody perfect. What we are is disciples of Jesus Christ and that needs to be known. Who are you? I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. Yeah, I'm a knucklehead, for sure. Yeah, I promise you'll see an orange motorcycle do something stupid this week. I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. The third problem, he hung out with the wrong crowd. Three things. He followed Jesus at a distance. He failed to identify as a follower of Christ. And he hung out with the wrong crowd. You hang out in the wrong crowd and you will become the wrong crowd. You hang out in the wrong crowd, that's what happens. Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. We got got nothing to do with that. James 4.4 says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You got to pick a side. I remember in the Marine Corps, <clears throat> I was coming up in rank. Uh, I had this incredible experience in the Marine Corps to get to come up in rank more than once. So I was coming up in rank and I was getting more, more responsibility, but I was still trying to be friends with all the people I was friends with. I'll never forget this. And so the more responsibility you get, the more you got to kind of get people to toe the line, right? That's just how that works. And I remember one of my friends telling me, you got to decide who you are. Because you can't be both of those. You cannot be a friend of the world and a follower of Christ. you got to pick. Friendship with the world is war with God. Peace with God is war with the world. That's how it is. That's what the Lord has declared. Peter hung out with all the people who were going to be beating Jesus, all the people who had rejected him. That's where he's hanging out. That's who he's with. We can't hang out with the wrong crowd. We must identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, and we got to walk close with him. And you will be the Peter who became in Acts 2. By the power of the Holy Spirit that God has given to us, we don't have to make the same mistakes. We are are able to overcome. Amen? Amen. Why don't you guys stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word, to come together with other believers to draw close to you, to not be afraid of who sees my car in the parking lot, but rather to say, this is the family of God. Are we perfect? No. We're, we're dumb just like everybody else. 
As being a family of God doesn't mean you become perfect. You never make wrong decisions. You never say wrong things. You never do wrong things. Being part of the family of God simply means you are identified by a savior and not your sin. So God, may we as your people look to you as our savior because you will change us. It's not an excuse to wallow in poor behavior. It's a starting line to see ourselves growing and becoming the men and women that you want us to be. As a family of God, may we encourage one another. As a family of God, may we help to hold one another's hands up. And as a family of God, Lord, may you pour out your spirit in this place so that we may be men and women of Issachar who know what to do. And may we be men and women who do it, who accomplish your perfect purpose, who don't presume, but because we are students of your word, because we are walking close with you, because we are identified by you, because we are together with one another to strengthen one another, we will be ready for whatever you have for us next. And through it all, God, we want to proclaim your glory, your beauty, your majesty. And as we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face, to that time when you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. When, when those days arise, God, I pray that we be well spoken of, that we would stand before our Savior and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That we would live our lives not looking backwards, nothing we can do back there. We live our lives with our eyes on the prize moving forward toward the upward call of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And may you be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.